You are listening to Building the Future, Green Building in the New Millennium, brought to you by SustainableHomesOfTheFuture.com. I'm your host, Ian Sollenberger, and this podcast is for anyone that wants to collaborate and learn more about how to design and construct energy-efficient buildings for an environmentally sustainable future. If you have questions about how to design and build with a lower environmental impact, or you'd like to come on our show as a guest, please email me directly at info at shf, that's sustainable homes of the future, shfbuild.com. Visit our website at shfbuild.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at shfbuild. Our mission with this podcast is to inspire you, our listeners, to go out and be sustainability advocates. Share these ideas so we can truly push this industry forward. We need each and every one of you to help us build the future today. All right. Well, uh, welcome to the Building Our Future uh, podcast. Uh, My name is Ian Sollenberger. I'm the host. I'll be doing an interview today, uh, which is pretty exciting. Um, And I have with me today, super excited to introduce um, Brian Hennessy. Uh, he is currently the Senior Vice President um, at Avison Young, uh, works in commercial real estate, uh, formerly of Yunnan Properties, Colliers International. Um, he is also an author of the number one uh, Amazon bestselling, The Due Diligence Handbook for Commercial Real Estate, as well as the How to Add Value Handbook for Commercial Real Estate. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much, Ian. Yeah, glad to have you on. Um, obviously, you know, this is a sustainability podcast, and so jumping right into like market analyses and things like that might seem like a, a bit of a left turn, but you know, from my perspective and in our discussions previously, you know, it's really important to know where we're at right now before we can kind of understand where we're headed. Um, and I think a big part of sustainability uh, as, a, as an overarching term or as a concept is all right, where do we come from? You know, using history, using current market analyses, and then kind of projecting what are, what are we looking at as we build the future? I mean, that is the name of the podcast. So um, first question I'd love to ask you is, you know, you, you wrote these books. Uh, I, I'm, I'd love to know what the impetus was for your handbooks. Um, and then also as sort of a second question, the how to add value. Um, give us an idea of, of, you know, sort of an overview of how you've been adding value in, in your own work and uh, what you've seen in the industry uh, over the last few years, o- over your career. You know, you don't have to go into tons of depth, but what are some of the traditional uh, value adds for commercial real estate and why did you write these books, I guess? Okay, that's a fair question. Yeah. <laughs> for questions. Uh, let me give you a little context as yeah. to, you know, my background and how that came about. Uh, I've been in the commercial real estate industry for over 35 years in different uh, uh, facets of it. And how the books came about is is basically what happened. I had been a commercial broker for about 18 years when a client of mine who was starting his um, real estate investment firm asked me to come to his firm to become the acquisition disposition vice president for him. And uh, I thought that would be a fairly easy slide since I had been a broker for 18 years. But what I found out once I got there, uh, it was very different from being a broker. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, what happened was the first couple of transactions that we, that I was involved with when I first got there uh, were two large office buildings, uh, one 300,000 feet, one 200,000 feet in Dallas. And we were buying them from a Canadian investment firm. And uh, the vice president of the uh, Canadian investment firm that I was dealing with quickly surmised I was new at buying large office property. So he decided to take full advantage of that. And um, what happened was I was the investor who I, a client of mine who uh, hired me on as his uh, vice president of acquisition dispositions, didn't have enough room in his office at the time. He was only had a like 1500 foot office and he was growing and he stuck me in a vacant office all by myself. That was about 7,000 feet. And I had this <laughs> desk there and uh, oh, on my desk, I had a bunch of legal pads and I was uh, writing down all the questions that people were asking and information they needed and who was I was supposed to get it from. And what ended up happening was it just became a super stressful scenario because I was really not familiar with all the information that I was supposed to be sifting through and gathering and deciphering. And uh, what happened was it just the heat just got turned up during the due diligence period. It was 30 days due diligence. And as the clock was ticking, so we were getting towards the end, I was getting more and more questions from the investor, the investors, the real estate attorney, the accountant, the, more, the lender. And I was just, you know, I couldn't wait for the process to end. And I was totally stressed out, sleepless nights. I'm sure. <laughs> Finally, it ended. I was like, oh, thank God. And then a couple of weeks after it, we closed the desk room, I was coming into the office one morning and one of the gals said, oh, yeah, an investor wants to, you know, see you. I said, okay. So I put my stuff down. I went over to his office. He said, yeah, come on in. Have a seat. So I sat down and he got up, closed the door behind me. And after a long silence, he said, I just want to know how you missed all that information that we were going through when we were buying those properties. And I was like, what information specifically are you talking about? And then he started going down the list and I said, well, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know about that. I didn't think to ask about that. I didn't, you know, I was like, and then it was evident that I was missed some critical information I should have had. Right. Humble experience. I'm sure it was, you know, I was, embarrassed. I really didn't know what to say. It was kind of humiliating. And then he finally said to me, um, you know, I, I think I made a huge mistake in hiring you as my acquisition person. And at that point, I was even wondering, you know, if, if he was correct at that point, I was like, you know what, maybe he's right. Maybe I was just way over my head. So I, that night when I went home, I just couldn't sleep. I I was tossing and turning all night, wondering how I missed all that information and everything. And then I just decided when I got up the next morning, you know what, I'm going to write myself a, a manual, a reference manual. I'm never going to let that happen again. I'm going to ask, put all the questions I need to ask, all the issues I need to review, all the checklists I need. And I'm just going to keep a running um, track of all the lessons I learned when I'm doing this. And like we ended up document almost. 
What's that? Like yeah, like, like, yeah. It's just for my own reference, sure. basically. So I didn't have to reinvent the wheel every time. And uh, we ended up buying like eight and a half million square feet of property in less than four years all over the country. And it was, wow. it was a lot of um, information and different markets. And we actually bought even a, a very large hotel. Wow. And um, so it was a, a huge, huge uh, learning curve I had to go through, but wow. it was I learned more in that time than I did in the previous 18 years about investments. And uh, we bought some from some of the biggest uh, institutional owners in uh, in the world for that matter. So that's where you learn a lot of lessons. I'm sure. Yeah. The pros, you know? Yep. So um, what happened is I ended up going off on my own after uh, about four years of being with them and started my own syndication company. And then I bought a uh, 350,000 foot, um, portfolio of office properties in Houston. And that was in March of 07. And um, that was really uh, a huge learning curve because we just were at the beginning of the, you know, the great recession was just coming down the pike at us. Yeah. And uh, so that was, you know, a, a big time three and a half years I, I held onto those properties and I, but uh, the great news was I, you know, I managed to keep them occupied, cash flowing, uh, 82% occupied uh, right. during, that time. Uh, during a very, very tough time. Yeah. Uh, but um, was that, if you don't mind my asking, uh, you know, just in brief, was that creativity on your part? Was it just, you know, diligence of sort of continuing? Uh, it was, it was uh, a combination of a, a, a lot of things. It was just, I was just hell bent to make sure that uh, I was doing everything in my power. If a, if a tenant uh, gave us a proposal uh, that was, you know, 5,000 feet or more, I would, I'd fly out to Houston, meet him face to face. Yeah. Try to make the deal. If a tenant said they were, going to be moving out, I'd fly there and meet with them and just say, what do I have to do to, to keep you here? How can we structure this to make, make it make sense for you to stay? Right. Yeah. So, but the bad news was I ended up, uh, the loan that I had ended up getting bought by GE Capital and they, um, uh, actually ended up foreclosing on the properties, taking them Hmm. because I didn't meet, um, the stringent, um, formulas for debt coverage ratio service, you know, debt service, yeah. uh, DCSR. So, um, and I tried very high, I actually sued him during the process because um, um, Texas is a very lender friendly state. You know, you, if you get a notice of default, you have to reinstate within 21 days. And then if you don't, then they sell it on the courthouse steps the next month, first Tuesday of the next month. Wow. So um, I, decided even though the odds were stacked against me to go ahead and sue them because I asked my attorneys well what the the options you know what were the odds and they said 50 50 depends on your judge and the circumstances and I ended up staying the foreclosure and wow. One. One. wow <laughs> and it was like you were just learning were, on the fly weren't you yeah they were they were flabbergasted it was like what and the judges said hey they must know what they're doing if they're cash flowing in this horrible time you should try yeah. to work this out with them. 
So, uh, but what ended up happening is uh, even if I got them to agree and I had to take them out because I, I went to talk to a, a bankruptcy attorney because some of the couple of the partners were real estate attorneys who were trying to force the uh, bankruptcy of the entity, which mm-hmm. brings personal foreclosure, right? Mm-hmm. Personal uh, guarantee, right? Yeah. But I was willing to do it if it would have helped the uh, investors out. But uh, he said, hey, if, if they're, if you win, right, if, you, if they say, okay, just give us our money, you're right, it's only worth this, right, can you go out and get a loan right now? I don't know. It's six, seven million dollars I'd probably have to come up with. So just give them the keys in. But I, uh, anyway, I, I, it was one of the hardest things I ever had to go through in my yeah. career. But I learned a ton. Yeah. And um, so uh, I tell people, don't be afraid to uh, go out there and take chances. Just make sure they're calculated chances. And, and uh, you know, that's failure and success are just kind of interrelated. You don't have one without the other, you know. So. Exactly, yeah. But um, so when I when I got back into brokerage, I didn't know what to do because I had been out for a while. Mm-hmm. So I decided to take my little reference manual and uh, turn it into an investor handbook. And put it up on Amazon, which I, you know, I, I wouldn't even spend the, you know, hundred bucks to get a cover done because I never thought it was like, <laughs> the one copy. I was like, well, I'm gonna spend money for it. Like, it's just yeah. to tell people, it's just a marketing thing, you know. Yeah. And it ended up selling copies, and I was like, wow, people must think this is useful information. So I ended up taking it seriously and getting a professional cover done, and I put some stories in it and about you know, personal experiences and what have you to make it more relatable. Mm-hmm. And uh, it ended up uh, doing very well to this day. It still does very well. It blows my mind still. But, uh, you know, it's, it's been a very gratifying experience because a lot of people have gotten help from it. So, yeah. So what are, what anyway, are it, yeah, I was just going to say, so my second part of my question, sort of uh, what are a couple of the traditional value adds that you, you know, on the, how to add value to commercial property. Like what are, what are some of those that, that you talk about in the book? Well, you know, the, that one I wrote because, um, um, what I found was a lot of owners, uh, were over the years that I had seen and make making the same mistakes all the time. Right. And they're pretty basic. But um, a lot of people just don't see it that way. So I figured, you know what? If I were just starting out and getting buying properties and whatever and, and investing for myself, what would I want to know when I was going through it? And um, so that's basically why I put that together. A lot of it has to do with the way you, first of all, it starts out at the beginning and the due diligence to, to me. Yeah. Due diligence is the crux of real estate investing. You make your money buying. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And you just, the, 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 I tell people it's not the sexiest part of in, investing, but it's definitely, you know, one of the most important by far because um, very rarely, if you know what you're doing, um, is a property going to be worth the same as when you sign the contract to at the end of your due diligence period? Why? Because you've 
peeled back a bunch of layers, you've drilled down very deeply, and you found out all the different various factors that you could find out that's going to affect the value of that property, right? Because right. The, the seller isn't, or the broker who's selling it is not coming to you with a list of problems with the properties. They're not saying, hey, you better be looking out for this and whatever you do, make sure you check this out. And, you know, no. It's they, might tell you the, they might tell you the smallest one that they can, that they can yeah, think of, yeah. right? just to throw you yeah, off a red herring. Yeah. You replace that gutter in front that's hanging off. This, you know. But the roof may need some patching, you know. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? But, there's, but it's, it's much deeper, obviously, and um, most of the lessons that I learned in the book, I learned the hard way, the, you know, the expensive way. And I always tell people it's always cheaper and easier to learn from other people's mistakes, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome that, that you've, you know, brought that value to, to folks who, you know, are trying to do a similar thing that you are and hopefully help their learning curve be a, <laughs> a little bit, uh, a little bit easier. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, my, my, my hope for yeah. the people to pick it up and I've, I've had great feedback on it. So it's been, like I said, very gratifying to know that it's helped people. So. That's great. But, um, uh, so I was going to, oh, were you going to answer the continuum? Well, the second one I started, I kind of basically explained the premise of, which is, is if you're going to uh, buy this stuff, now you have to make sure, you know, that you keep at least, and how can you create additional value through these structures? Right. And what if you, what if you're in a soft, you buy it and you're in a soft market and now you uh, have to find tenants to replace tenants. Hey, right now we're going through probably one of the worst ones I've ever witnessed in my real estate career. Yeah. And uh, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg right now. Mm -hmm. You know, this is coming down the pike here. It's, it's going to be a tectonic change of the way people approach it. And uh, you know, some of these, some of these businesses aren't going to be coming back to occupy their space. Right. And on a going forward basis, you know, what do you do? How do you secure your um, tenants and your, your property and your income stream and all that stuff? So it's, it's going to be, uh, a, a, is and will continue to be a, a huge learning curve for, for a lot of people, even people that have been around for a long time. For sure. Um, one of the things I wanted to, we discussed last week when we were chatting, um, this idea of, you know, co-working and co-living was this, you know, big thing last year, you know, for the last probably two years or so, it's been building up and all the articles I was reading in January were saying, you know, 2020 is going to be the year of co-working and co-living and it's going to be this huge boom. Um, obviously, things have shifted in the last, the last couple months. Um, and I'm curious, you know, with about half of folks in America now, somewhere between 25 and 50% of Americans working from home, um, doing this, you know, Zoom chats and, and all that. Do you think that co-working and co-living will continue to scale once we do sort of, you know, shift back into a, a growth economy here? Or um, how do you see that, that market shifting? Well, you bring up an interesting uh, point there with uh, us all being forced to work out of our homes, um, many of us. It's probably the vast majority of us are in that yeah. in, in, in a, a kind of industry that would allow you to do that. But uh, I think that's going to uh, emphasize the point that 
you don't necessarily have to be sitting in an office to um, be productive or get things done, right? Right. And, uh, you know, I was talking about this with somebody uh, a couple days ago that the whole WeWork thing um, and the um, collaborative workspace um, I wasn't, I knew it solved some issues. It also created some issues at the same time. Uh, it's actually, um, um, probably going to be create more issues than help because you know, the WeWork is the biggest tenant in New York city. Yeah. So you can imagine what's going to happen there when, you know, a bunch of people aren't going to be excited about you know, sitting around with other people in close proximity, it's going to take a while for this um, pandemic paranoia, I guess you would say, mm -hmm. uh, to die out in people's memory, right? And um, even once things settle down, and I'm not, yeah, you know, I, I'm not a soothsayer. I can't tell you when it's all going to being normalized again. Hopefully it's this year. So we're open, you know, yeah. but, um, uh, but people's trend. memories are much. I was going to say, it's an interesting trend in the industry. I mean, over the last uh, 10 years or so, tell me if I'm, I'm off here, but I think the amount of uh, square footage, like per worker, you know, in, in an office was uh, you know, somewhere around 300 or you know 400 square feet you know per employee and then over the last 10 years it's been going down and down um to the point where now you're you're uh, anticipating somewhere in the like 100 you know 150 square feet per employee yeah this this changes that idea because that proximity um you know if everybody needs their six feet <laughs> you know or yeah that, or whatever, that uh, and i just think um it's it's not really the perfect solution for everybody. You know what I mean? I'm not saying it's going to go away and we're never going to see this type of thing again. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it, it could work for certain industries and um, certain businesses that uh, actually benefit from that collaboration. But um, what, they were finding in, in some industries, it was, it was actually not even productive. It was counterproductive. Right. Yeah. And um, so I do think that we're going to see that change up quite a bit. I actually think that we're going to see a much, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Diminished need for, uh, office space because um, number one, there's a lot of businesses are going to be not around. Number two, uh, people like we talked about uh, find that they can do quite a bit from their uh, home environment, right? Mm -hmm. And or remote environments, however you want to, you know, play it or work it. But um, and then also that um, it's just it's going to be more acceptable to corporations. You know, we were running on an old model anyway. I think you and I were talking earlier about uh, that Japan study where they, they uh, found that 
when they went to a four-day work week there, productivity yeah. jumped 20% plus, right? Exactly. And, when, and that was over a period of time. It wasn't just a fluky thing. So some of the American corporations thought they'd give that a shot, and they found out that they were getting the same results. So I think what happens is we were, we were running on an old model, but like anything else, whether it be uh, – you know, areas in a city that are changing or being uh, regentrified. It takes sometimes a generation to turn things around. Yeah. And so uh, I'm not saying it should take that. Things are moving much quicker than they used to, but uh, it doesn't happen overnight, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, yeah. so this is a new model that, a newer model, I should say, that uh, is being uh tested and tried and there and I, I predict we're going to see more of it and um, people will adapt quite easily to it I think you know what's interesting is in 1970s they kept I remember as a, a young buck reading in all these articles oh we won't be working we'll have so much more leisure time in the future we'll be working you know 30 25 to 30 hour work weeks well it, it turned out to be the, the opposite. opposite. We were working longer. Than exactly. hours, right? So all this technology was supposed to simplify things and make things easier. All it did is it, it, it uh, kind of stretched out the work day because now people are calling you at night when you get at home. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, on weekends. And, yeah. And, you know, it just, it's, it's, so it's, I think this, this is a well, much needed, um, change in society and uh, it just sort of brings a brings a magnifying glass on something that was already happening to some degree you know some trends that were already shifting right. um, you right. know and some some things that were already you know moving in, in one direction or the other and now we're actually having time to sit down and look at it and think about it rather than just being busy 80 hours a week you know yeah. no it's accel. i think it's accelerating the change right and, and i think it'll be in good and it'll be a, it'll be a good thing in, in a many many different aspects of it. Well, um, you know, what's interesting about the, the Japan study that you mentioned is um, when you start to dive into the why of, of the, that productivity, I mean, obviously you have, you and I talked a little bit about, you know, people that are commuting, you know, maybe an hour or, or more to work. And so you're talking about a couple hours a day that, you know, yeah, you can do some stuff in the car, but not the same amount you can when, you know, and maybe you're hungry and you're thinking about breakfast and, you know, whatever. You can't be fully productive when you're at home. There is the opportunity for making sure that all of your basic needs are met. Um, you can skip off to the, you know, the bathroom or the kitchen or, you know, check on your, your family or whatever really quickly without necessarily, um, without necessarily, you know, upending the flow of, of your day. Um, right. And, but I, but I also think, Productivity to some degree is based on some of the stuff I've read on happier, healthier uh, workers, you know, individuals. And so I wonder if, um, I guess my specific question is, you know, are traditional investors, you know, when they're looking at portfolios and thing, I'm bringing it back to sustainability here. Um, you know, sustainability, a big part of it is creating healthier, better performing buildings so that the people who are living in them and working in them or just interacting with those buildings, um, you know, are happier and healthier. And so uh, I guess this is a twofold question where I'm kind of saying, 
you know, obviously working from home can lead to some of that, that happier, healthier environment. Um, but for folks that are still needing to work in an office or, you know, the co-working or collaborative environment is something that they're really, that's important to their business model. Um, are traditional investors seeing that? Are they seeing these sustainability things? Are they seeing, hey, happier, healthier individuals? I want to add these things in because it's going to uh, create a longer term lease. Um, it's going to, you know, create lower vacancy in a building that maybe is a residential building. You know, it's going to be f less turnover, you know, less headache for me because people are going to come and actually stay because the building uh, cares about them, you know, to not, not sound too holistic, but. Yep. I think uh, what this, there, to answer that question directly, uh, uh, yes, there are some in, uh, companies, investment companies that are starting to put much more emphasis on that. Uh, I think what's going to happen now is before it was kind of an option to try to figure it out. Now it's not so much an option. Okay. It's like, do you want to survive? Do you want your asset to be valued more than what you paid for it? Right. Okay. Well, you better start figuring out ways to attract, you know, tenants in there and uh, make it so it becomes more valuable and they're willing to pay the price to be there. Because what, what happened in the past and what has kind of gradually happened is I'll use downtown Los Angeles as, uh, as our example, since you and I can relate to that and maybe our listeners will be able to visualize this and understand it a little bit. But yeah. there was a, a section uh, in the 90s that was developing called Bunker Hill down there. And it's kind of like the resurgence of, of the downtown Los Angeles market. Well, in today's market, that is no longer considered a real viable market. Not too many people want to be there because um, buildings are older. There's no amenities close by. So they're all moving down closer to the... LA Live, Staples Center, Convention Center down near there where there's all the amenities and lots of things going on, new properties and uh, just, it's just a much more happening area over there. So- And the reason some of those amenities are there is because of some of these mixed use buildings, right? I mean, you've right. got residential up top and then you have, you know, they're trying to bring bring activity to the, the, the front. Exactly, it's kind of a, a um, it's just kind of a self-generating uh, uh, environment because the people that are moving there are saying, hey, we want this or, you know, and then they get more of that and they see that's working. So that brings more businesses in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now they these, these buildings up on Bunker Hill are emptying out, which is not that far, you know, what is it, a couple miles or whatever? You know, walkable, but, yeah, for sure. Yeah, walkable. But uh, nonetheless, it's just why, why be there when you can be here, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so what's happening is they're going to have to start thinking about how to repurpose those properties. And what will happen with those is uh, they'll probably go some kind of mixed use thing where maybe, uh, let's say it's a you know, 35-story building and they've got uh, maybe the first five or 10 floors would be office work oriented, maybe have a gym, some retail, some eateries, things like that, uh, daycare, whatever. And then um, above that would be residential, mm -hmm. right? And then maybe at the top, there's some kind of, a, you know, entertainment oriented 
sure uh, restaurant, restaurant yeah. club or something i don't know i'm just yeah. coming up with yeah but but there or you even have, like some condos like luxury condos or, or yeah or right yeah exactly so uh conference centers or whatever right yeah so uh th- i see that happening there because it makes no sense really to go there and then demo a you know a 650,000 foot building or whatever it is, <laughs> just, right. uh, just repurpose it, right? They've done it in Chicago and- Yeah, New Chicago's York done a great other. job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, so that I see that happening there, uh, but it's, the landscape of this is definitely gonna be changing. Retail was already on its heels before this even happened. They were trying to figure out, you know, you know what do I, what's gonna work here? You know, the, the retailers that are, weren't service oriented or, you know, they were still trying to figure out how to fulfill their niche um, by not being uh, internet uh, impacted. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so we're going to see that that just got turned upside down right now. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen, but if you were to ask me, you know, well, what do you see in those, you know, new buildings or those retrofitted buildings. Well, I think we're going to probably see like touchless entry. Um, It's going to be, it's going to take all these uh, personal protective kind of uh, measures, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they have, they do have the technology now to take people's temperatures as they're walking in the door by, you know, infrared or whatever they do. That's wild. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, without getting too big brother this year, um, uh, it, it's going to, it'll give people another comfort level, right? If you, if, if you were coming out of this pandemic thing that we were coming into and your offices were going to be moving, would you rather be in a building that, that, you know, has touchless entry and all this stuff. Right. Uh, right. Much, right. I mean, much, the, the other yeah. piece of that too, for specifically for uh, residential and multifamily is uh, incorporating. I know some of these co-living places, one of the big draws is you don't have to clean um, because there's a cleaning person that, you know, is part of management that is, is there, you know, maybe every day or once a week or whatever, and does like a full, you know, Clorox scrub down. And <laughs> that was already happening. I can see that um, definitely taking hold uh, as an amenity, which is, you know, is an interesting amenity. You wouldn't have thought like, it's, it's almost like the hotel model and the, and the apartment model yeah, and, the, and the co-working model all sort of like coming together. We talked a little bit about that, you know, where maybe you're providing an amenity that, was a separate building like a co-working space or whatever you would go to your co-working space that was a mile away well what if it's in your building and now as a tenant in that building you know you can work from home as much as you want but then you also have you need to do a, a call a zoom call or whatever and you've got a you know a brand new baby or something and you, you don't want to be interrupted there's a Wait. space for you to go down you know um there are some co-working or co-living places that uh, cater to musicians and they have like music studios in the actual building. And so I can see that creativity um, becoming more and more important as a developer, as a builder um, or, a you know, somebody renovating a, an older building like that, you know, coming up with those amenities that you might not have thought of five years ago as an amenity for a residential building. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think all that's going to play into uh, 
the future of uh, all of it, you know, even urban, even suburban in some ways, there's going to be uh, changes with that. Uh, I mean, we were already starting to see the beginnings of some of this with the ghost kitchens, what have you, they're becoming much more prevalent. Uh, delivery much more prevalent than it ever was. Uh, people that can avoid, especially in the major metropolitan areas, uh, getting on a you know busy freeway will you know be are more than happy to take advantage of those services that are out there. So this is kind of um, ex basically not only accentuating but accelerating the whole um, acceptance of it. I think for all across the generations. Yeah. Are there, are there any downsides, do you think? I mean, we've talked a lot about the upsides to, um, uh, let's call it multi-use instead of mixed-use, because mixed-use tends to be two different uses, but multi-use, as we're talking about, maybe you have five, six different uses in the same building. Um, are there any downsides to that, or is it all positive? I think, it's, I, I think it, it will have to work itself out, you know, because um, we don't know necessarily what, I mean, there's some obvious ones, right? But, um, but I think there's probably examples out there that could be, uh, used that where it does work. Right. And so it's a matter of, I think who your user base is, right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what is it that they're looking for? I think that that's really, you know, the, the commercial real estate landscape was, is kind of morphing into a, another, um, type of uh, landscape that we we're still experimenting with. Right. Yeah. I mean, mixed use just used to mean retail on the bottom and, you know, either office on top or, or residential on top. Now it's a lot of different things. Right. Sure. And it's, and it's, you're starting to see it more. And before I remember it was like, yeah, that's weird. I don't know if I'd want to go, you know, there and do that. Now, if, very dense area. Hey, is it going to save you 40 minutes, on, you know, walk, driving side streets or jumping on a, you know, subway or whatever, what your bus or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. Hey, sure. I think I can get used to it real quick if I don't have to do that. Right. Sure. So, um, I think it's, it's just a matter of what it is, where it is. And, you know, people will, um, decide for themselves, you know, yeah, I, I, I like that. I I'll, give that one a try. Are there any outside of the box, uh, you know, uh, strategies or value adds that, that we haven't discussed so far? I'm going to throw one out there in a second. Um, but I'd love to hear before sure. I prompt you if, if there's any that, that you've seen or thought about or heard people discuss that we haven't already discussed. Uh, we've kind of covered most of the ones that I'm, I'm familiar with. Um, I'm sure there's others out there. You know, I, to me, it's, it's, uh, if I were, let's say if I had a large, uh, apartment complex that, you know, a few hundred units that I wanted to keep my tenants and attract more tenants into, and I had just gotten them, I'm renovating it. What would I want to do there to make sure that I, you know, have a, a differentiation amongst my competition out there right mm -hmm. 
And uh, besides the obvious ones, like, you know, fitness facility and, uh, you know, a game room or something or a business center, you know, maybe add some other amenities in there that are not typical, but you could find that would be either hair and nail salons or, uh, you know, different, just depends on the demographic that you have in there, right? Right. But I think if you had something like that in there, you're going to, depending upon the socioeconomic structure that, you know, that, that was occupying it, you'd probably get people say, hey, that's pretty cool. I could go there and get a, a haircut or, a, you know, whatever the case may be and have uh, those amenities that are in there. And it may just support uh, a small, um, either an owner user of a, of a business or something like that. So yeah. I think you're going to, maybe it's a dry cleaners, maybe it's a, you know, a, you know, juice bar. I don't, I don't know. I'm just throwing things out there. Sure, but yeah. it, could, it could be any, any combination or number of those kinds of things. Um, one that, that we're sort of, you know, I work for a design development company here in Santa Monica and uh, one that we're idea that we're playing around with is automated parking. Um, which is something that you, you know, you've seen in New York for a while, um, not always integrated into the building. Generally in New York, it was just like a parking lot and they were like, all right, let's, you know, build this, uh, you know, steel grid and now we can park 180 cars instead of 60 cars or, you know, whatever. Right. We can go right. three or four, four floors up. Um, but one of the strategies we're looking at for this building and working on right now is automated parking where literally you pull into a bay. You get out of the car, you leave your key in there. Uh, or no, I'm sorry. You don't leave your key in there. <laughs> you take the yeah. key. Um, and nobody's ever touching your car. It's like valet without the valet. Now, huh. there, there are a lot of, obviously, the, the big uh, challenge for that is convincing people that your I'm car's sure, okay. And it's not yeah, that your car's okay. Mm -hmm. That if something breaks down or the grid goes down, how do I get to my car? So, you know, there's some, there some factors to consider, certainly. But they, they are... Uh, workable. There's one in West Hollywood. Um, the the city of West Hollywood building has one right behind it. And the cool part about it is it's, yeah, it's like valet without having anybody get into your car, which again, in this particular environment that we're in right now, looking at the other side of it could be a benefit. I don't know that I want a valet hopping touching in my, my car. car and touching my yeah. car, you know, That's or they're going to wear a mask and, you know, gloves when they get in there. So right. in this case, you lock it, it's locked, you leave, you know, the, the, the robots take your car <laughs> up to its parking spot. And when you come back, you throw your, uh, your payment in there. And then within 30 seconds, 60 seconds, you know, um, one company, Utron that, that we've been talking to says, you know, two minutes is like the tops that you'll wait. Think about how long you've waited for a valet in your life, you know, yeah. and obviously in a, in a busy time, that's going to be longer. Um, so have, have you heard of that in any buildings here? Uh, not or? the self valet, but I've obviously seen it in, uh, other properties where they have the lifts, right. And they cost yeah. about eight grand, I think per lift, something like that. You can get them uh, refurbished. I mean, there's a bunch of, they're actually been around that long. I think when I first saw them, a lot of people were kind of freaked out by them. Like, nah, what if the thing fell on my car and then, you right. know, whatever. So, uh, but I think what's happened now is they're starting to see them, especially if you go downtown, you're starting to see them more down there where they have them just the parking lots and they're stacked in. But uh, I think it's become more acceptable. Uh, I have not 
run into the ones that you're talking about where you pull your car up and then uh, make the payment and then it goes up to, to the, I don't know, what, I guess it's just two, two on, one on top I'll of the other. I'll share a video with you. It's actually, so like this particular strategy is cool because um, you, you can fit more cars in a smaller space because two reasons, you know, there's nobody walking around there. Um, so you don't have to duct the building. You don't actually have to have heating and air conditioning right. in that section of the building where traditionally you would have to. And then your first level, you'd have to have, you know, six or eight feet worth of, uh, you know, ducting and, and all your systems down there. Now you right. don't have to have that. So in what would have been one level of parking, you can actually now have almost one and a half or two levels of parking. So mm -hmm. you don't have to dig down as far if you're going subterranean. So there's some, some benefits on that end, but literally it's just these two rollers, um, one that goes under your front axle and one that goes under your back axle. And uh, while the car's in park, the, these two little things come and lift up the car and then it rolls it onto an actual lift. Huh, so it's not parked, it's parked traditionally. It's, you know, the only difference is how it gets up there. Right. Um, but it's on a concrete, you know, parking structure. It's not suspended in the air or anything crazy like that. Um, right. it's pretty cool. And there's some, some awesome, obviously sustainability features in that where you're, you know, less impact on the environment, not having to do as much build out. So there's some cost savings too, for a developer. No, that makes, makes total sense. I think, I think it's like anything else it, it, people have to get used to the idea, you know, once they see other people going there and doing, it's like, oh, okay, it's not that bad. I think I'm, you know, yeah. I, I would let that, you know, let my car be parked that way. So, and, and, those of us that have been downtown and try to find parking and you get in a structure and then you can't find a space in there and you're driving around and you drive out, then you go to the next place and, you know, and your car is, looks like it's in an ocean of cars in there and you're going to, how are we going to get this out? And to me, <laughs> makes the other way you just explained seem uh, actually not only easier, but, you know, more protective of the car <laughs> in yeah. some ways. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, it's it, it's interesting. I mean, you're talking about these autonomous cars that will be taken over in the next whatever five ten years, and um, what's going to happen then? This will be antiquated, you know, because uh, you know, unless the it won't uh, need to park. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it'll just be <laughs> at some remote location and yeah, close by, and they'll figure that one out. So it's hard to say what. Uh, you know how, how this when you project out in the future how, to, how it's all going to work but it's kind of it's kind of interesting to try to see how that that could work out with all that so um have you i'm curious i hadn't asked you this when we spoke initially but uh have you seen an uptick at all in um, buildings and in, in investors portfolios with lead certification or um any you say uptick uh I wouldn't say it'd be an uptick. I think what's happening is people are actually realizing more and more that it wasn't just kind of a, hey, want to be, be the first one on your block to be a lead certified building. Now it's like, hey, people are really looking heavily at that when they're making their decisions and they actually don't mind spending a little bit more to be in a lead certified building if in fact you know it's within this, the ballpark of the 
the cost, you know, because it's just cost benefits and they're just, yeah. sometimes it actually can make more sense, right? Because if they're passing through uh, operating expenses uh, for energy and what have you, obviously the LEED certified building is going to be, uh, you know, much more efficient in that respect and less cost. So, Right. Uh, there are some arguments for that, but I mean, yes, I do. I do think that that does uh, actually enhance the leasability of properties, and therefore the asset value at the end of the day. Right. Exactly. So it's like when you go to sell it, hey, it's lead certified, and da 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 da. It's like you know. So you know, all of this stuff is kind of. Uh, getting spearheaded right now because it's as buildings empty out as they have in the past during recessions what have you right mm -hmm. and tenants start looking around for space when they do it's they start scrutinizing right and at the end of the day it's okay what are we getting here and how much does it cost us? Mm -hmm. right it's not rocket science or put to punch in a calculator but I think it goes a little bit deeper uh, from the respect that if you don't have something to differentiate yourself, then you're just another address on the list, right? Yeah. So when you start saying, hey, this is what we're charging, but this is what you get in our property, right? And we use all, you know, LEED certified equipment and uh, these non-toxic uh, you know, right. materials, carpet and what all that, you know, all that stuff, right? Sure. And um, we have these amenities in there and uh, we've realized, you know, this amount of savings once we retrofit it or compared to the other properties in the area. So it's like, wow, that's pretty impressive, right? And then we also do, uh, uh, quarterly or biannual, uh, you know, um, uh, duct cleaning and disinfecting and all that stuff. So all that stuff's going to be, Hey, this is a no brainer. Let's just go here. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. like for the additional, whatever it is per square foot, it's not that much. It's another 10% or 8%. Well, let's just go here. Mm -hmm. right? well, and with the cost of, of some of those things, you know, and, and the knowledge, uh, about some of the materials and the, you know, pushing the edge there. Some, some of those costs that used to be a lot more, maybe five or 10 years ago, you know, are now, yeah, are now pretty similar. And so with some smart design and some sort of integrative work on the front end, you can realize maybe even some savings on, on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, if it's not now in the not too distant future, it's not going to be even an option for some people. It's kind of right. like, no, we would never go into a building like that. Right. Yeah. And once your building is in that category, it slips down into a different class, right. Which you cannot get the same rents. And then you're catering to a different, um, uh, type of tenants that are in there. Yeah, exactly. I liked what you said. That was a good soundbite though. Uh, the, you know, you, you have to stand out. What is it about your, your particular building? You know, what value are you bringing? Competition, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they do that now, but I think uh, it's not as apparent, but it will be. Like I said, I, I, I truly think uh, once 
things settle down. And I can't tell you exactly when that's going to happen, but yeah. you, we will start seeing uh, marketing of properties with different, some of the different things we just talked about, the, you know, the touchless entries and, the, um, you know, the toxic, uh, whatever it is, eliminations of, of, of materials and, and the clean duct, the ducting, they, they, they've gotten some pretty cool technology now to do that, mm -hmm. that, um, like you said, isn't that crazy expensive as it used no. to be, right? Yeah. Not as labor intensive as it used to be. So with that, it's, you know, you're really setting yourself apart from your competition when you're able to do that. Yeah. And you've got, again, you know, we don't have to talk in depth about this, but you know, there's legislation, you, know, you talked a little bit about like, you're going to have to do these things. And you know, on some degree, to some degree, especially in California, you have places like Berkeley, um, UCLA has now said that all of their new construction uh, are going to be all electric buildings. And we can have the, the longer discussion, you know, some other time about uh, yeah, how much electricity costs and all those sorts of things. But, but really at the end of the day, the goal of that is again, that better performing, healthier, you know, so that the, the people that are in the building are actually benefiting from, um, from the building itself. Absolutely. And, and the and, community and, is benefiting too. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, on a going forward basis, that's the way uh, developers are looking at, you know, building their buildings is basically because you don't want to be having to go back after the fact and redoing some of this stuff because right. it, may, it makes zero sense and you know, it may cost you more up front, but uh, in the long run, it's really creating more value for your property. You know, the issue is here is these properties that are older right now and don't have these things, those have to be, those costs have to be factored in when you're looking to, uh, purchase them that's where my due diligence uh uh information um will be uh implemented in it because you got to factor in those costs when you're factoring what you're able to pay for the property yeah yeah um that's actually a perfect segue i mean i've, I've really enjoyed having you here thank you so much for the discussion for your expertise mm -hmm. in this area um do you want to go ahead and just talk a little bit about if anybody wants to contact you or, you know, find the book? Yeah, sure. Or, I'm, I'm, they go? I'm, uh, I'm happy to answer any questions regarding uh, due diligence, whatever. Uh, um, my email address is Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at Impact Coaching Systems, that's with an S, dot com impactcoachingsystems.com. And then my uh, phone number is 818-371-0311. That's 818-371-0311. You can uh, check my books out at uh, amazon.com. It's Brian Hennessy, H-E-N-N-E-S-E-Y. And then uh, it's also on Audible and iTunes, the books as well. So it's the Due Diligence Handbook for Commercial Real Estate, the How to Add Value Handbook for Commercial Real Estate. And the third one for any of those that are residential uh, agents out there, it's the Residential Agents Handbook for Commercial Real Estate. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate you joining me. Ian, thanks for the invite. Uh, really enjoyed it. All right. I will uh, talk to you on the flip side. <laughs>